0: What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I got Jeff Banks from Visual Discrimination and the Chorus of Disapproval. It's a nice long interview. We get into everything, and uh, Jeff was a super awesome guy, real generous with his time. So stay tuned for that. Also, this Friday, the day is upon us, motherfuckers. It is the pre order date for the new Retali LP called Four. You gotta go to indecisionrecords.com. And handle business. Order a bunch of copies for your friends and family, and uh, maybe even treat yourself to a test press. What's up? Please support the podcast. Uh, subscribing to it is the best way, and telling your friends and writing about it on social media or texting your buddies. You know, it's what you got to do. Uh, please like it, rate it, review it, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you want to go the extra mile, you can go to. Patreon.com slash 185 miles south. Become a monthly Patreon. $1 gets you behind the paywall. If you can hook it up with some more, that's sick. But there's basically a bonus uh, podcast. I'm trying to do it for every single interview episode. So, uh, you know, this week we got the Jeff Banks uh, interview is obviously today. And there'll be a Patreon episode where I have a couple buddies on. We talk about the interview. We go through his discography. And uh, those are are my most favorite pods to do. I think it's the best material we do. So go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south. Check that out. And let's get on with the pod.
1: 185 miles south. A Hardcore Punk Rock Podcast.
0: What's up everyone? This week on the pod we have Jeff Banks from Visual Discrimination and Chorus of Disapproval. How you doing, Jeff? I'm good, Zach. How are you? I'm doing great, thanks. So stoked to have you on. Um you know, we're branching out a bit. The The pod started doing mostly Oxnard area and San Diego. And then I've done a lot of the people that I wanted to do and, and some of the San Diego people I want to do in person, but it's just a weird time. So I've had a lot of fun doing some of the bigger orange County figures. And, and I love like both these bands and you're just, you're a perfect dude to do, I think. So thanks. Thanks for taking the time.
2: Oh, I, I, I sure appreciate you uh, thinking of me and to tell you the truth, I, I, I may love the fact that you've interviewed a lot of those Oxnard guys as much, maybe even more than your uh, yourself. so I love your podcast and I, lo- I just and to be to be considered with some of the folks that you've interviewed is uh,
0: thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, how did you get into Punk and hardcore?
2: Um, well, there's a couple of different things going on at the time, but I guess it would have been around 80-ish. Would have put me in about fifth grade, I suppose. Um, We had a store, in. I grew up in a town called Cerritos. I lived in Long Beach as a little kid, and then we moved out to Cerritos. And in Cerritos, which is uh, Southern California, you know, it's near um, La Mirada, Norwalk, Artesia, Long Beach, um la palma and then you start getting into the orange county cities it's the last city in los angeles county uh runs right up to orange county anyways we had this record store called best records and it was awesome i mean it was just the greatest punk rock uh record store uh, especially for its time it just had everything so we would go, uh, it was over by the Cerritos mall and we'd go eat or you know, do whatever. And I would always cut out about 15 minutes before we would finish eating. And I'd go over to best records and just kind of, kind of check it out. Um, and what I did is I picked up the, uh, the jealous again, black flaggy piece. And, uh, that was kind of my starting point. And then I had a friend named Jeff Birkenkamp who I went to school with, and uh, he was getting into the Ramones, and you know. But from that Black Flag record, I kind of worked my way backwards to the Ramones a little bit. I was never a die-hard Ramones guy, but you know, I, I, I like the Ramones, okay. Uh, I was head over heels for that Black Flag record. Um, but as time was kind of going on, you know, I was still listening to the Beatles and all kinds of that. So I was very lucky. Uh, years ago when I was a little little guy my dad uh, to supplement the income would sell stuff at the swap meet and this is in like 74, 75 so I was probably like 5 or 6 years old and uh, so we would do like the Long Beach swap meet, the Paramount you know that circuit and before we would set up my brother who was 2 years older than me uh, I don't know why he did this but he would go around to other swap meet stands before you know the place was open for business and he accumulated first press uh beatles records so we had like a whole beatles collection um so that was kind of my first taste in the music and i would listen to that stuff and just you know so from from then until i Got that Black Flag record? I was just obsessing uh, over the Beatles, and I had access to them. And then you know, Van Halen and all that kind of stuff. Um, As time went on, probably about 1980, 81, um, there were some families down the street. A couple doors down, we had the Silvas. Two doors down from them, we had more Silvas, and they were all cousins. Across the street from them, we had the Torres family. And then down the street from them, we had the Estrella family. So, uh, you know, and the Silvas had a swim. They were the ones that had the swimming pool in the neighborhood. So I was always, you know, going over there and going swimming and all this kind of stuff. Well, one night, and this is probably, I guess, 81, 82, uh, I'm riding my bike just kind of down the street and I hear this loud, I mean, it's like loud, kind of grumbling, So I ride down and it's coming from the Silva's house and it was Ramiro and Alfredo Silva were the brothers that lived there. And it was just this blaring music that sounded kind of like that black flag record that I had. I'm like, man, so I'm kind of riding my bike in circles, just listening for about 10 minutes and this car pulls up and this. Girl gets out. She seemed much. She seemed older. She was probably like sixteen, but she seemed much older to me. And she gets out with this guy, who is dressed like a um, what is it? The guys from Clockwork Orange, like a droog or whatever, with the like the derby hat and the sure the the, the Doc Martins and the stuff. <laughs> he right. gets out, and I'm riding my bike around, and she says, "You know, hey, who are you?" And I says, Oh, I'm Jeff. I live down the street. And she says, Do you know these guys? Do you know this band? And I go, Well, I know, I know Romero and Alfredo live here. And she just kind of ceremoniously announces, I manage this band, right? She's like all of 16. And then my guy gives me a business card and he says, I'm the singer of this band. He hands it to me. And I look at it and you're gonna love this. I look at the name of the band and it's retaliation, not retaliate (laughs) retaliation. Right. right. And I'm like, Oh God, this is like, that's like the greatest name for a punk rock band ever. And she says, why don't you come inside? Uh, I'm like, okay. So I walk in and dude, uh, I was like, I walk in and there's Oscar Estrella on one guitar. There's a guy named who I later learned was a guy named Jack bond on the drums, and then Ramiro Silva is on the other guitar. And Ramiro was just a few years older than uh, than my brother. And I'm looking at him, and he's got you know he's just up. He's got like his bands on and some 501 just faded kind of jeans and like a <laughs> like a sex wax the GNS shirt or whatever you know. He's just like all surfered out. And he's playing uh, like a Strat copy, and the cord is just one of those curly cords into one of those yellow DOD overdrive boxes, coming through some amp. And he's just ripping out these riffs, and it was just so stripped down and so just awesome. It was like Ramiro Silva's playing a freaking guitar in this loud music that sounds like the Black Flag, right? and all this is kind of processing this. And at the same time, Oscar's like, "Hey, Jeff," and he was several years older. Um, you know, he's he had a Charvel Star from the Sandinas uh, factory. I later learned, so he had this like incredible guitar. Uh, and this this also, if, I don't know if you can tell, but this also started the night uh, the, my, my my small career in obsessing over. Uh, <laughs> guitars and accessories and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, But I, I just, I remember everything about that night. Oscar had a Charvel. He's playing through a 410 Lab Series amp and then Jack the Bond. I'm watching this drummer and he's incredible. And all of these guys, I knew them and I walked in and it wasn't like they all, they were just cool. They took me seriously. I was a little kid. They took me seriously and they were nice. And it wasn't like okay, you've seen enough, get out of here. It was like, yeah, dude, hop up. You know, they had, I remember the washer and dryer were out it was in the garage. So I kind of hopped up on the washer. I was kind of watching these guys play. And, and man, that, that night and Ramiro Silva set up with the one stomp box and just that, that, that just became the blueprint for what I, for my visual and what I perceived punk rock to be. Um, and then those guys turned me on to, well, like Devo and all that kind of stuff, but they also turned me on to the X, the Los Angeles album. And then that Jack bond guy went on to play in channel three. There was a punk band out of Cerritos called channel three.
1: Sure.
2: Um, and then, uh, you know, so they went on to share members. I think Oscar Estrella may have played I think he played in a band called hated principles for a little while or sat in with them. And then, uh, gosh, I want to say he may have sat in with the Dickies. I don't know that that, I had heard that. I don't know if it's true or not, but just as time went on, I watched those guys. They took me seriously and they were very nice to me. Uh, I would walk home from school and sometimes Oscar would be kind of outside in his garage just riffing and jamming and i'd stop and and he'd he'd be playing and he just you know showed me all kind of riffs and it was i was just mesmerized i'd sit there and watch him play and i'd be like can you play this and he you know he'd play it and he taught me about like palm muting and just all kinds of like little tricks of the trade and then as time went on and we started bands and playing and stuff he was always always just very cool and loaning us uh amps equipment and all that that kind of stuff but that that was kind of my my lead in uh the punk rock um at least as a as a listener
0: yeah and then do you start playing guitar shortly after that
2: um well sort of i kind of picked up the guitar my brother played guitar uh, he was more of an acoustic guy. Uh, he and his friend Mark Ford. Mark Ford. You ever heard of Mark Ford? I have he not. He played in uh, The Black Crows. Okay. He went on to play in The Black Crows. Anyways, my brother was uh, buddies with Mark Ford when we were little kids. And they started out playing guitars together. They played, <laughs> played like Fleetwood Mac covers in the elementary school talent show. And I always remember because I was in like third grade, my brother was in sixth. So it was in two separate buildings and my brother always laughs because he remembers going into the auditorium and I was sitting there kind of crisscross, applesauce, watching. You know, he and Mark Ford played Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac. So I thought it was kind of rad. So I thought, oh, I kind of like to play the guitar too. So I went to one or two kind of group lessons uh, one of the teachers at my elementary school, Mr. Milling, did evening group guitar lessons for free. And that's where Mark Ford and my brother used to go. And I tagged along like one time and it was the acoustic guitar and it just wasn't for me. I was like, ah, eh, it was too much work. I just, you know, learning those chords and those kind of slides just wasn't it just wasn't my thing. But then as time went on, uh, I guess going into middle school I met a kid named Stuart Holiday. And then, also in middle school, you know, you have the elementary schools kind of converged into the one larger middle school uh, where I grew up. And there were kids that I had played sports with, baseball and basketball and whatnot. It was another kid named Steve Raza, who uh, was also in the Black Flag and went to a different elementary school. But now here we are. We all go to the same middle school. So, meet this kid, Stuart Holiday. And I saw other kids, Steve Raza, that I knew for many years. And the three of us decide that we're going to start something. Steve played guitar, and Stuart was just a natural on the drums. Uh, Stuart hated punk rock, but man, he was a good drummer. Uh, He was more into like Journey and Ario Speedwagon and, you know, like Queen. And he was still into Kiss, which nobody was listening to Kiss, at least not where. Not at my middle school in, you know, 81 or whatever. That's like when The Elder was coming out and stuff. But anyways, he was still a diehard Kiss guy. So I kind of reacquainted myself with Kiss. And the middle ground that we found, the three of us, wasn't punk rock, wasn't Journey. But we would play like Van Halen covers and this sort of thing. And then we would also uh, do Clash covers and that sort of stuff. That was really the first band that I was in, was in... uh, middle school we played parties and yeah maybe well maybe like four or five parties and i was absolutely hooked uh and then as time went on um i was working for a baseball card dealer and we would go uh go up to like san francisco and seattle for baseball card shows and as payment he was like he was a metalhead guy and this is right when like the Great White EP had just come out and uh, I think the first Motley Crue records, is like 82 I guess um, as payment or as partial payment uh, we would go to metal shows so um, I'm playing in this band with Raza and Stuart Holiday and, and at the same time getting to go see like Great White at the Troubadour uh, and you know shows like that, and going into all these sunset strip bands and uh, it was really cool and then meeting people from the Bay Area from the baseball card circuit uh that were like metalheads. and we would trade records and and tapes and all that sort of stuff so it was kind of it was kind of like parallel lives going on i was the i I really liked punk rock, but I wasn't crossing paths with anybody that actually wanted to play it. Uh, so as middle school kind of went on, Stuart Holiday moved to Norwalk, which was a town over, so he switched schools. We would try to kind of keep things together, but he was going into a different direction, and then one day he got frustrated because I wasn't progressing as a musician very much, and he just goes, why don't you just start a punk band? And at this point, uh, Steve Winders who I was uh, going to middle school with also, had started playing guitar. And uh, Steve Winders is the uh, other guitar player in Visual Discrimination. But uh, before Visual Discrimination, Winders and I started a a punk band called RTO with a dude named Charlie Moore, who was from Santa Ana. Uh, And he was another baseball card like circuit guy uh, who was into punk rock. Charlie was a singer. Um, Steve and I played guitars. and We had this, ki- this kid named Kurt Robel, who was also a baseball card guy, uh, playing the bass. Kurt wasn't really a punk. He was just kind of, you know, we were friends, and he, would, he was hanging out and stuff, and he would accommodate us and play bass. We didn't have a drummer, but it didn't matter. We would get in there, and we would like start ripping these tunes and playing and all this kind of stuff. So I guess eighth grade, summer, going into my freshman year, uh, we started with r t o and that was really my first uh
0: punk band that i started uh, Steve Weiners and i got got started Do you ever find a drummer or do a recording
2: um, yeah, eventually we find drummers, but uh for r t o no well I mean we recorded you know just with a radio where you hit play and record outside the garage, sure. And I, I still have that tape kind of floating around somewhere, but it was, uh, you know, not, not nothing to, uh, <laughs> nothing to write home about. Sure, it's, it's pretty remedial stuff.
0: Do you remember uh, starting to go to punk and hardcore shows? And do you any early memories of that?
2: Yeah, um, I guess it would have been. Well, there there were some things that kind of happened in between before I could really, I just didn't have access to punk shows. I worked for that guy and he was a metal guy, but there was no way that he, you know, we were going to punk shows. So I just didn't have access. I didn't drive. Um, And I just, I wasn't, uh, I hadn't stayed in touch with the Silvas down the street uh, enough to to be going to shows with them. And they, you know, they had kind of gone on a different punk rock path than I had. I was getting more you know, just into different stuff. It wasn't until well, there were you know, you'd have punk dance play like at the lunch hour at my high school and stuff. But as far as going to punk shows, it probably wasn't until like 84 into 85. And that was in, I guess into my end of freshman going into sophomore year. Uh, We met a kid, Steve and I met a kid named Byron Bailey. And Byron Bailey had just transferred into our high school. Uh, He lived in, he had lived in uh, Lakewood, which was the town over. And My grandmother was from, lived in Lakewood. So I was there pretty often. But uh, Steve and I are standing there one day at lunch and this dude walks by and he's wearing like, like pegged Dickie's pants. And Winos, like a pair of you know what Winos shoes are? Sure. And like a Harrington jacket and a you know, like a shaved head. But we couldn't but he was on the football team, so we couldn't tell if he was like a a football guy or, or what. We're looking and it's like, nah, this guy's into something. We went up to him, we just kinda we just kinda went up and smothered him. We're like, hey, we you know, what do you got going on? We get to talking and he's, he's like, Oh, my name's Byron and sure enough, he's into all of the like ill repute, solid thirteen and all of that aux art stuff. And he's heard of he has heard of all these bands that Winders and I have been obsessing about for the last, you know, year, year and a half. And it's like, Hey man, will you play an instrument? And he's like, No, not really. But we kind of conscribed him, and it was it was almost a "well, you do now" kind of a situation.
1: Sure.
2: Um, it's like, how would you like to play the bass? And He's like, oh, you know, okay. So we kind of started to uh, jamming with him, and he says, "Well, I know a guy named Morgan, and then another dude named Miles out of uh, from Lakewood, from his old neighborhood, and Morgan plays the drums. What do you think?" like yeah so we go winders Byron, and i go over to this kid morgan smith's house in lakewood and we start playing and it's like this guy's a good drummer he's like a year younger than us but he's good you know you watch a drummer and you can just tell you know what i mean you can just tell if somebody's good or not Absolutely. gets it and yeah so this guy got it he's really good uh so you know we're kind of jamming and playing and stuff and but it's hard to get there he doesn't drive we don't drive you know once in a while we'll play at my house my mom went to holland for gosh like a month and a half back in like 85 and my dad my dad was awesome but he you know (laughs) but my poor dad works the four to midnight shift right so it was like free reign for band practice in my garage at all hours until my, you know, until my dad got home. So we would have, we would have Morgan and everybody would come over and we'd jam in my garage really loud, really late. Uh, and that band was called the imp. It's
0: uh,
2: <laughs> a great name. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, there was some tapes moving around. We never recorded anything formally. Um, but, you know, it was fun and, and it was great. That Miles kid who was to be the singer, I don't know. Here there was just we. I never really got to know him very well. He seemed like a nice guy, but I don't I don't know the reason. He just kind of kind of stopped coming around. I think he was into maybe into skateboarding more than wanting to play in a punk band. Uh, so Byron says, "Well, I might know another guy." And we're like, all right, who? He says, my brother. I was like, okay, well, you know, let's find out. So we go over to Byron's house and wait to meet his brother. And his brother walks in after he gets home from work. And it's Tim Sawyer, right? Like, ah, oh, so we came to know this guy. And Tim's a couple of years older. And 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 just, the, uh, oh, man. I mean, talk about my Steve's wives just really changed. Forever for the better, when uh, we had the combo platter of Byron uh, Bailey and Tim Sawyer, and it was at that point that we really, really became mobile and being able to go to punk rock shows and you know these are the backyard parties in the middle of no you know in the middle of some neighborhood in Long Beach, um, you know, and the Fender shows and the Melody Dance Theater shows. In the Olympic Auditorium, and just all of that stuff. It was Tim Sawyer who really, really kind of, kind of opened the door for me uh, to start going to those
0: kind of shows. And any uh, standout shows you remember?
2: <sighs> yes,
0: yeah. um,
2: you know, probably, uh, probably the show that really kind of set it in motion for me is we went to a show in a backyard in Long Beach and there was a half pipe and probably 100 people and the band Dissension you know Dissension? Sure. Yeah, they were playing in this they were in the bottom of the half pipe and they were playing and people were, you know skate guys were skating while they were playing and I'm watching and kind of look I was a taller kid so I was able to kind of look over the shoulders of people down into this little pit area where the path pipe was and just watch Descension play to these 100 people in this backyard. Dude, the energy and that size crowd, that, that is, from, I was so taken by that and watching um, watching Descension just rip it up and they were so good. God, I is the drummer. Was so good, uh, and they sounded just fantastic. They were great. Um, that really, really made a mark on me. It was like, oh my god, I want to play these kind of shows. Nothing more, nothing less. Right? That was like just that's it. That's what this is. What I want to play these kind of shows, and I want to go to these kind of shows. Um, and then we were uh, so that that one really made a mark on me, uh, and I, I won't say. Uh, it was Mike Shiriko who was the guitar player for Dissension. He was a little guy who like Paul Simon with his gene and his Marshall. He, was in a, he had been in a band called Target of Demand. Uh, but just watching him shred it up for Dissension, and then they had Matt Vargas. Matt and Kelly were brothers. And Matt Vargas kind of brought the heavy for Dissension. He had a modified Marshall. And, oh, God, they were so freaking good. Uh, so that was a real standout for me, uh, watching Dissension at this party. And just the crowd was into it. People were skating, and it was fantastic. Um, and then another another standout uh, was in Cerritos, actually. I worked at a gas station, and somebody told me, DEI is playing a house in Cerritos. Uh, so Tim and Black and Steve and Steve's brother, Jeff Minders, and I went. To, uh, and went and saw DI in a freaking bedroom at this house you know, and it was awesome they were so great uh, and you know you're there and you, you kind of know people and there's other people you don't know because I mean it's DI right so they're pulling from Fullerton and all these other kind of areas that I hadn't really ventured out into yet but it was cool you know you met a lot of, met a lot of folks and, and and that one really kind of stuck out stuck out for me um and the one night was just having a practice at Morgan's house and Tim Sawyer's like um it was uh, right after a band practice and it was just kind of a oh yeah there's a show up so we all pile into Tim Sawyer's car and we go and it was aggression
1: yeah and it
2: was awesome I I that was oh man that, I mean that was really really something for me because that that first aggression record I learned to play drums to that record I learned to play guitar to that record Um, it is just it's an absolute masterpiece it is for me now I've listened to it steadily uh, for the last gosh however many years Um, and and it was a masterpiece for me then so to be able to, hey, we're going to go see Aggression tonight. And it was, it was I'm not sure who played drums, but it was Henry on guitar, it was Bob on bass, and it was Mark on vocals. I just don't know who played the drums. But, dude, it was awesome. I mean, it was so, God, they were great. And then Dog, I want to say, it was Doggy style, I think, open forum. Um And just a free-for-all. It was insane. It was so fun. Uh, and again, you know, meeting meeting people, seeing faces, a lot of faces, this a lot of people I didn't know. Uh, but it was uh, it was great. It was just great
0: were were you intimidated um, by were you intimidated by the crowd at fenders at all?
2: At that time, no, but it was probably because I didn't know any better, and I think it might have been a little on the early side. I came to. I wouldn't say be intimidated by the crowd at Fenders, but just, uh, you know, you, you always kind of had your back to the wall at Fenders, or at least I did, um, as time went on. It, it got it started to get a little uh, a little rowdy. It was a show, if we fast forward a little bit, it was a show that uh, Visual Discrimination played there with the cro and Uncle Slam. And I love the Cro-Mags. And I really love Uncle Slam, but I tell you what, man, that was a that was a pretty interesting crowd that night, and that was one that you know you had to kind of kind of be on your toes a little bit. But you know, I was I was always a pretty a pretty mellow guy, fly under the radar as far as that kind of stuff went. I never had I never had any problems as far as that kind of
0: stuff went. That's cool. So let's talk about starting VD. How does how does the band with Uh, Tim in it like merge into doing VD and you deciding to have him sing
1: well uh,
2: once Tim had joined with uh, the imps the name of that band changed to Dead Tradition and we played a couple of parties and then um, Morgan moved to Hawaii to live with his dad so that kind of that kind of started bringing it to a halt Um, and at that point, it, uh, we were just kind of hanging out, not playing in a band, but going to shows. Uh, and then when I was in, I guess maybe sophomore year, I was in auto shop, which if you know me, that's kind of a joke that I would be in auto shop. But anyways, I was in an auto shop class which also under the same roof had the auto body class. And there was this new guy from, again, from Lakewood who had transferred into my school named Jeff Simmerman. And I was over there, you know, I see he's a punk rock guy. So we get to talking and we're kind of, you know, standing. He had a Dotson 510. We're kind of standing and, you know, it's like a class project and stuff. But we get to talking about punk rock and he's like oh yeah i play in a, a little band with some guys and i go oh really i played in a band with some guys he Says, what do you do i said guitar and he says oh we should get together and he says yeah we should get together so like that weekend he comes and picks me up we go over there and we play uh i had written there's a, a visual discrimination song called resist. And I had written that. So I had that song already. And we kind of played that song a little bit. And, you know, he was running around with all these Lakewood punks and it was great. We were at his house and his mom was at work all day and we're in the garage and there's just all, every Lakewood punk was just coming and going to his garage all day. So I got to know all of those Lakewood punk guys and they were real into like, you know, I was like a seven second um, aggression, all that nardcore stuff. I was like heavy into all that stuff. And a straight edge guy, I was you know, all into the, all the straight edge stuff. And these guys were like MDC, uh, uh, conflict, and you know, all that, all that more political kind of stuff. And I loved all the political stuff. I was real into all the discharge and all of that, like crucifix and those bands as well. I was very, very into that stuff. But these guys were like, a whole nother level So like crusty all that kind of stuff they were into that so i'm over there and we're playing and they're all mohawked out and all this kind of stuff but we all get along and it's great and that night the first practice that night Zimmerman says oh so-and-so's having a party you want to go play it I'm like yeah so the three of us go uh it was me that kid named dan fisher and Zimmerman. we go play uh, and the other guitar player, his name was Derek Alford. For whatever reason, it just never really materialized with him playing guitar. And I kind of just kind of started being the guitar player with these guys. And then after a couple weeks of jamming, it became clear that it was like, okay, what are we going to do? We need a singer. What are we going to do? And I, uh, I said, I might know some guys. They said, okay. And I, uh, asked Tim and Steve Winders to come and play uh, lead guitar and we all got together and Zimmerman had already named the band before I had gone and jammed with them. They were calling themselves visual discrimination but they hadn't really, they didn't have any songs it was more like a, I guess a, a talking kind of concept thing at the time. Sure. But once, uh, once, uh, once Steve and Tim and I merged with Zimmerman and Danny Fisher that's when we really really started kind of playing and writing songs and that's that's where it started was in that garage in Lakewood
0: do you do a demo before the LP Uh, we did but there was
2: a breakup a couple of other bands that started and then VD kind of
0: re-emerged okay Um, but was there an official VD demo before the LP oh yeah okay
2: yeah there was cool um, but bef- bef- uh, before that you know, it-, it was uh, visual discrimination split um, and Winders and I uh, Tim and Danny Fisher and Zimmerman started a, like a DB band called Nonfiction and they were good and they play was a, they had guitar a kid named George Contreras from Cerritos played guitar and they were freaking good and then Winders and I started just this over-the-top straight-edge band called Denial um, with a kid named Rory Cowan on bass. And I, I actually switched over to drum, played drums in Denial. Jeff Winders, Steve's brother, was the singer. And we were in Denial. And this is when all of like the Uniform Choice demo was out. And all that Uniform Choice shows at Fenders and Melody Dance Theater, all those shows were going on. And it was at that point when we were in Denial, that we were in the band Denial, when we were going to all the Uniform Choice shows and really getting into all of that stuff. Uh, Nonfiction did a demo. And i God, I wish I had a copy of it because it was great. And they had some songs that became Visual Discrimination songs. And then Denial recorded a demo uh 12 song demo and a lot of those songs eventually became visual discrimination, uh, tunes. But, you know, for whatever reason, uh, nonfiction kind of hit the skids and it just wasn't working and denial kind of ran its course. And we all kind of looked at each other and said, you know, we should get visual discrimination, <laughs> discrimination back together mm. again. And we did. And, uh, You know, we brought all of the straight-edge songs from Denial, and they brought all of their kind of animal rights and B-beat songs, all your theft of the age kind of songs from nonfiction, and we put it all together. And then we went to, uh, there was a place in La Palma called Plaza Music, and we had gotten to know the guys that worked there. And every Friday night, they would have just kind of an open store where you could go and get behind the drums and turn on the amps and grab a guitar off the shelf and, plug it into a Marshall and basically we would go and have band practice with all of this high end equipment. And as we got to know these guys, they had all kinds of recording equipment and they recorded, we recorded the denial demo at Plaza music after hours on the recording equipment for a hundred bucks. And then we did the same thing with visual discrimination. We did the 12 song demo at Plaza music uh,
0: for a hundred and $105. I think that one, <laughs> that one was pricey. Yeah.
2: Yeah, just a little yeah. different engineer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do most of those songs so, yeah. make it onto the LP?
2: Um, yeah, I think just about every single one did, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah.
0: And just a sidetrack: What was it like seeing Uniform Choice around that time?
2: Uh, incredible! It was so great. Um, yeah, we we Jeff Winder's had gotten a hold of the demo, and me, Steve, and Jeff would ride three in the cab. And we would listen to he had this tape on the one side was the Uniform Choice demo, and on the other side was the Scared Straight Seven uh, Inch. And I love the Scared Straight Seven Inch. And one night, yeah, we went to see Uniform Choice and Scared Straight. It was at the Melody Dance Theater. This was this was great. Um, and Uniform Choice was just freaking insane. I think Black played that show too. Because uh Pat Dubar was on the stage talking about how we just signed Blast, the Wish of World Records, and they're gonna have a record coming out, and then Blast played. and they were I thought they sounded like, well, at first, you know, I was kind of like a lot of people. It was like, this sounds like Black Flag, and then you kind of start to scratch the surface and and anymore it sounds nothing like Black Flag. It's just not, it's its own thing, and it's phenomenal. But anyway, um yeah it was incredible that I was full bore jumping on stage. Uh, you know, sorry, Dubar. I would, I, I was, I was grabbing the mic out of Dubar's hand, you know, and screaming the word. I mean, it was, uh, it was awesome. It was so great. Yeah. And that's where, um, you know, a lot of those, uh, Orange County kind of sloth crew guys and all, uh, you know, I'd, I would come to know as, as time went on, this, those were some of the first shows where I crossed paths with some of those dudes. But uh, the Scared Straight show, just the, I, uh, Scott Radinsky had a baseball game or something, right? So he wasn't there, but Scared Straight was going to play. So they get up there and they're like, our singer's got a baseball game or whatever. And so we don't have a singer. So... And then Winders and I, the Winders brothers and I just grabbed that mic and we were singing Scared Straight songs. It was freaking awesome.
0: So So, rad. So rad.
2: There you go. Yeah. God, I love Scared Straight. Their guitar player had a rainy half stack uh, and an SG, which uh, I always would take 10, 15 seconds and just kind of obsess on everybody's gear and, (laughs) and kind of make mental notes of what they were playing.
0: Sure. So, Anyways. So, VD, yeah, uniform VD, choice was great. Yeah, of course. Yeah, VD does a demo and then do you start playing shows? Or are you still playing parties?
2: Yeah, uh, parties mostly and I'm not sure, you know, when I, I worked at that gas station and as luck would have it, it was in the next town over in La Palma and I didn't know too many kids, it was Kennedy High School in La Palma, I didn't know too many kids that went to that school, but I was obviously a punk rock guy working at this gas station, you know, with the Paul Weller Dickies and big bright ass blue pointy toe creepers and my union 76 shirt and my bald head, right? I was like this punk guy. So the punks from Kennedy would come in and get gas and we would strike up conversations. And for whatever reason, uh, one time, uh, somebody said, "Hey, we're having a party. You know, if you're in this band, why don't you come and play?" So that things would kind of start falling into um, into our laps that way. Uh, and then, God, that that seventy six station was a gold mine. People coming in and out of there. Eddie Egan from Savage Beat Records. He put out like Heavy Dirt and the Pig Children EP, and just just seminal records that I have just spent, had just spent hours and hours just listening to. All of a sudden, Eddie Egan is getting gas at <laughs> the 76 station. And then one time, this skate kid comes in with this other dude who looked like he had just come from soccer practice or something, and this is like 1985. And I'm blaring, the mechanics and the managers had left, so I'm blaring seven seconds inside the gas station. And this kid comes, they come in to get gas, use the bathroom, he's like, hey, is that seven seconds? Yeah. And we exchange numbers, and he gives me this piece of paper, and I look, and it's like his name. I'm looking, am I reading this right? And his name was Zoltan Teglis. I was like, ah, oh, that's cool. <laughs> so it turned out, yeah, it turned out it was Zoli from uh, who I would uh, uh, see again. He did some things with uh, Evan Jacobs for Anadina Films, and we, you know. He didn't remember any of that Union 76 stuff, but I remembered it. I was like, ah, I I never, you know, you don't forget a name like that. Anyways, it was kind of cool. So, you know, it was just people kind of coming through. And then uh, there were uh, some girls that would come through from Kennedy High School who next thing I know, I'm going to the Olympic Auditorium with them and they're keeping their ears open and getting us parties to play and all this kind of stuff. And then Tim Sawyer was just a, gold goldmine for booking parties and shows and all this kind of stuff and he was he knew everybody and and just had all these uh you know tim's just a, he's just a good dude and he knew a lot of folks and and he got us a lot of parties and we had this demo and uh at the time you would take demos to zeds and we would take them by the 10s or 20s and sell them and so we had a lot of uh a lot of word of mouth that way. And then we got a really a uh, pretty good review uh, in Maximum Rock and Roll, our demo. Uh, so we got a lot of shows there that way. And then in Flipside, uh, Flipside Magazine, I guess this would have been like 87 going into 88, we got Best New Band Runner Up behind Operation Ivy. <laughs> Which you wow. know, I can I can live with that. <laughs> yeah. But uh we started getting a lot of show a lot of traction from that, a lot of shows from that. So Yeah.
0: Yeah. One thing looking at the back of the, the first VD LP, it it says he recorded from November eighty seven through May of eighty eight. That just seems like such a, a long time to record. How was that process?
2: It was uh it was two separate um like ten hour session and if you listen if, uh, when i listen i haven't listened in a long time but i, I when, when i listened to that record i can really tell the difference between the two sessions and the guitar sounds and we didn't have any tuners or anything so the tuning is all very different in the two different sessions um yeah like the first i think we did six songs in uh, 87 and then around May 88, we went in and did, you know, 14 more hours, excuse me, however many more. So that's why it was, it was two separate. Uh, We were just going to do a seven inch and nothing became of it. And then we, all of a sudden we had all these new songs, which we thought were uh, worth recording. So we went in and recorded them. And then, so that's why it was the two separate times.
0: Gotcha. Um, How do you hook up with big Frank and Nemesis? Um.
2: Well, I, it's funny because I would see Big Frank. And I don't know if he remembers this or not. I saw him at an LA Guns show at the Troubadour. Jeff Winders and I had gone up to see him, see uh, LA Guns, and I saw Big Frank. Was like, "Hey," because uh, you know we're these punk kids at this metal show. Um. So we kind of I, I knew his face from there and from Zed. Like that's the guy that works at Zed, and then at the olympic you would see him and it was like two thousand people and big frank walking around with like a baseball bat in his hand and that was the security (laughs) somehow he was able to keep order all his place so it's like it's like like you you just kind of know this guy or of this guy this presence and then you'd go in uh to zed and he was I always describe my dad this way too. He he's kind of the shy Goliath, you know, the gentle giant, the shy Goliath. Real soft spoken dude, kind of a big dude, but real soft spoken. And that's kinda of where we got to know him was just going in and out of Zed, and then seeing him at these kind of random kind of places. Uh, and then just kind of striking up a a little bit of a, a kinship. Tim Tim talked to him quite a bit and then uh winders and i would kind of chit chat with them and you know just bringing demos and he would let us know that they were out of vd demos we need more of this this kind of stuff and he was always just really really accommodating uh as far as letting us sell our demo just kind of hang out at the store and i don't know we all just kind of seemed to bring a smile to each other's faces whenever we saw each other and we just seemed to really hit it off. Um, you know, a lot of it was about music and talking about music. Uh, most of it was talking about other stuff so, that, that we had in common.
0: And then how do you approach him to do the record? Did you ask him or did he ask you?
2: Um, <laughs> it was, uh, well, we, we were originally going to go with this uh, label called National Trust. And they had a band called M.I.A. You remember M.I.A.? Sure. Yeah. Oh God, we loved M.I.A. And they had that first record on uh, Alternative Tentacles, and then and they were a Vegas band, but they had relocated out to Huntington. So we were talking to M.I.A. because we were going to be on the same label with them, National Trust. And then it turned out that the guy that ran National Trust name was Ron. Um. I don't, I, I I think that he probably had some sort of a substance problem the way he was just kind of carrying himself and he was very, very mysterious and shady, but we had signed with him. We signed a contract and given him all of our stuff, uh, all of our artwork, all of our tapes, all that stuff. And then it was just like radio silence that he was dodging us and we couldn't get the stuff back. And as this was going on, whenever we would go to Zed, we would kind of, kind of vent to Frank about a lot of that stuff. Um, so, you know, Frank had a, a sympathetic ear for some of the problems that we were having. And then Bush finally came to shove with that Ron guy, and we uh, kind of shook him down, shook his roommate down a little bit, and then he took us to where Ron was. And then we, I didn't shake anybody down. I was just kind of along for the ride. Sawyer, Tim Sawyer kind of shook the guy down. And uh, we got our stuff back. And at that point, once we got the stuff back, Frank, I think the wheels had started turning that he was going to maybe start a record label of some sort. And then, you know, we're in Zed one day and it's like, hey, what's going on? Nothing. We got our stuff back. And then next thing you know, he's like, well, maybe I, you know, yeah i can put that at first it was i may know somebody that could put it out and then he's like no i don't know i'll put it out and we thought yeah that sounds like a that sounds like a great idea so that so, was uh that's kind of how that worked out just right just over the the counter right there at Zed.
0: yeah so cool uh what was the idea for like the album cover and also uh how soon before you took the photo did you guys take your shirts off
2: I've never, t- I've, well, I've taken my shirt off once, but I've never been, I've always had my back turned to, to whoever. I don't take my shirt off. Sawyer and Junior take their shirts off. <laughs> uh, it was, I guess we took those pictures in, gosh, probably like, you know, in, in like late 87, early 88, probably. I think we, I think we had those pictures done before the second recording or finishing up the recording for the the second batch of songs. Um, Tim lived in Cyprus, kind of by the racetrack out there in Cyprus, California. And across the street from Tim lived this girl, Stephanie, and her boyfriend, Kirk Dominguez, lived there. And Kirk was a a photography guy and he was great friends with Tim. And that's... Winers and I got to got to know Kirk because he lived across the street from Sam. And every party we, he was at the DI party. We would go to see adolescents at a party and Kirk was always, always there. Uh, And he put out a, a a magazine called SFTG, something from the grave. And, uh, he agreed to take, to go out all through long beach one day and just take a bunch of pictures. So that's, that's the one on the cover is the one that made the cover. But gosh, there's probably a couple hundred just negative, undeveloped pictures that Kirk has from that day, because we went just all over Long Beach and snapped so many pictures in front of so much stuff. It was all day long. Um, You know, Kirk's the kind of guy that takes hundreds of pictures and has negatives and then, you know, develops a handful so I think there's, and there's a bunch of other bands that he's got just negative galore uh but um it was hot that day and we were in that was i guess that was probably in like signal hill area and we we're just taking these kind of alleyway kind of shots and all this sort of stuff um and i don't know there's a but for for every for every picture where somebody doesn't have a shirt on there's 50 pictures where everybody has their shirt on. So I don't know. It wasn't like, dude, I'm going to take my shirt off and, sure. and you know, and, let, and let's and let pose and have a, it wasn't anything like that. It was just, the. Uh, it was all kind of organic.
0: Yeah. Was VD a straight edge band or did you just have songs about it?
2: Just songs about it. It was, um, cause denial was a straight edge band and we had the carry over denial songs. I was a super like over the top straight edge guy in visual discrimination. Um, Tim, kind of in and out. It was a while there. Uh, Steve Winders, straight edge, but not, you know, not like overt about it, but he was. Um, And then Junior Baloki, who was our bass player, not straight edge, uh, punk rock guy into you know surfing and all that kind of stuff and then jeff Zimmerman, the original drummer he was like a total d guy animal rights vegan all of that you know spiky just all of that whole scene, uh not straight edge yeah. so
0: yeah <laughs> also something cool about the first lp you have two anti-cop songs on the record so one wasn't Absolutely. enough it was kind of cool yeah yeah,
2: Badge Happy Cops was a denial song. Okay. And then Prick Cops was a nonfiction song. Okay. So there you go. Yeah. Independent sources for the two anti cop songs.
0: Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really cool. I'm glad you backed <laughs> that up and, and talked about those two bands and how they converged because uh, that makes a lot of sense. That's cool. Um, oh, thank
2: you. Thanks, man. Thanks for hearing me out on
0: that. <laughs> yeah. So when the LP comes out, do you see the popularity of the band grow and do you start playing club shows?
2: Um, you know what? I, yeah, I mean, there were, it seemed like there were a lot more people that were going off at our shows. But truth be told, I, I, I never really in my heart of hearts knew if it was because people were like, fuck yeah, visual discrimination or, if it was because Big Frank was, you know, <laughs> we were friends with him and he was getting us on all these wonderful shows. I think it might have been a combination of both.
0: Are there any standout shows from that era that you remember? Um, oh, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, there's several. Uh, one Fender's show was pretty amazing. It was Visual Discrimination, uh, Blast. XL, RKL, and uh, Exploited. And it was like, oh, yeah, it was awesome. And this is how wonderful Big Frank is and was. <laughs> it's like, okay, you know, it's a packed house. This is Big Frank talking. It's a packed house. And we start at eight o'clock sharp because we have to have the show end by, you know, whatever time. So. Jeff, you guys go on promptly at 8 o'clock and you have a 25-minute set, no exceptions. And I was able to say, Frank, one exception. He's like, what? Vadim, who was the drummer for Half Off, and we were very good friends with him, Vadim gets off work at the, flo- at the flower shop in Hawaiian Gardens at 730 and it's going to be touch and go until he gets here. I just can't promise that he's going to get here by 8 o'clock to make our first song. So we may need to push it back 10 or 15 minutes until Bodin gets here from the flower shop. <laughs> and Big Frank kind of goes, Okay, let me know when he gets here. So here's the show started like 10 after 8. Because and there, I mean, it was packed. There was like a thousand plus people. It was a freaking exploited show.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, but Frank kind of held it off for ten minutes until Vadim got there before we started. That so knows. and that that set was freaking amazing. And then blast, that was the first time I saw Excel, and I had never, uh, I had never seen anything like that. That was so freaking great. And then you know, RKL. It was the second time I saw RKL at the Olympic a couple of years before that. Um, which was phenomenal. Uh, but yeah, RKL was incredible. That that show was just amazing. And and it was it really was a standout because we were on the bill and able to kind of get prime seats, not seats, but just viewing positions from the side of the stage and really just absorb blast and just obsess on blast drummer um and just and watch excel and watch that Adam Siegel guy from Excel just completely shred uh you know just all of that stuff.
0: So, yeah So cool. So it, it takes uh a little bit of time to do in vain. Um what are you doing like during that time? You just playing lots of shows? Going to shows?
2: Yeah, playing lots of shows. Um I had gone away to school. Like I had gone to school in Boston for a little while. So there was like a little, like a several months, like a little hiatus there. It was over, it was a summer, but you know, there was a hiatus there. And then, uh, yeah, just playing shows, kind of trying to write songs, Um, branching out a little bit as far as what I personally was listening to. Uh, I had met Isaac Golub by that time. So Steve Winders and I were hanging out with him quite a bit more. And, you know, with, with Isaac Golub, you got, I got, I got a whole new catalog of music that I'm listening to. Um, so, you know, just, uh, yeah, going to shows, hanging out, doing stuff, playing, practicing, playing parties, shows, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. There were always kind of, Standard shows that we would play, like a New Year's Eve show, or you know, so and so's birthday. All you know, there was always every month and a half to two months. It was always something.
0: So, how do you compare? In vain to step back and listen, and which do you like more?
2: Um, I I like step back and listen more. Uh, I was, I, 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 I'm frustrated by both of those records as far as the recordings and stuff. And we did in vain at West beach, but I just never got the sense that the guys at West beach knew what it was that we were after. And I mean, we had all, it had all the potential. Matt Vargas from dissension has moaned me his, uh, his modified Marshall. And I was playing a BC Rich uh, Mockingbird. Like I had I had like a good guitar and a good amp. And I always thought my guitar just sounded kind of thin and a little bit weak on that record. And I was always a little disappointed in that. And the drums. We went in. We took the first metal church album with us. We're like, we want the drums to sound like this. The like guy was like, okay. And then it sounded nothing like that. I don't know. It just didn't. It didn't have that big, cavernous, heavy ass sound that I uh, was looking for. And then the songs on it, you know, I had started, like I said, I had met Isaac by this point and uh, had actually record. he and I had actually gone and recorded some songs together. Uh, one that became a VD song and then another, so the, some of the others that became chorus of disapproval songs. Um but he Isaac had me listening to uh yeah New York hardcore where the wild things are compilation, and you had like those two raw deal songs and those outburst songs yeah that those four songs and that sound, the sounds of those recordings were so influential on me and my songwriting at the time, and I, I really. A lot of those songs on "In Vain," I, it was my attempt to try to kind of mimic or kind of start writing songs in, in, in kind of that mold. But once they kind of got through the the ringer and the recording and stuff, it just didn't come out like I uh, like I had it in my head. Although I, I do like, I do, I, I do still like the song "Crawling." And how that came out. It's probably my favorite song in that record. Um, but I was always a little frustrated because, you know, we're at this kick ass studio. We've got this great uh, uh, equipment and it just it just didn't translate.
0: How about the intro to Inevitable? What was the idea of of going like that? I, I don't know how I would describe it. It's like a kind of a total departure because it's like a clean channel, Metallica esque intro uh, for a pretty wild style band uh what's the idea there
2: (laughs) uh well steve winders and i were in denial together and we had played we were on the upswing and playing all these great parties and then we played a lunch hour at our school and it was just awful it was embarrassing and that night we were so bummed out that we were uh not going to call it quits, but it was like, man, this sucks. Uh, so we started kind of commiserating and playing our acoustic electric guitars that night. And we called it a month of Sundays. And it was this, this kind of somber, sad kind of guitar, two guitar kind of stuff. And that was the inspiration for that. He came up with that, um, that guitar intro. Uh, and it was kind of harkening back to a month of Sundays. And then, you know, just, uh, it was kind of, we were kind of laughing at the time. It's like, oh, let's totally, totally overproduce that intro with this clean, you know, it's yeah, I'm good. I'm glad to hear you say that because we were totally going for some over the top kind of that kind of sound. So that's, uh, but it stems from uh, a month of Sundays and then, he and I just kind of escalating, uh, breaking each other's chops a little bit. Him coming up with that and overproducing it. And yeah, so
0: sure. That. Another interesting thing I think on the album is uh, doing an AF cover, and you do another one in chorus. But let's talk about this first. So in 1990, how do you, why do you feel compelled to put like a an iconic song on your LP? uh
2: because they were an iconic band and we were huge agnostic front fans i was a huge agnostic front fan um love agnostic front and just love that song uh cla- a classic song a little bit at the time it seemed like it was a, a little bit of an under the radar agnostic front choice at least on the west coast i don't know how that song would go over, you know, for a, an East Coast band to cover it. But on the West Coast, when you would mention Agnostic Front, uh, you'd get people nodding their heads, yes. But when you would say United Blood, that that wasn't that was kind of a sleeper song. And I, you know, just love that song. Yes, yeah, cool. I think I, I I think I may have strong armed that choice because I liked that. I love that song. Yeah. and uh, Tim Tim called. Steve Martin got like called him on the phone and got permission to do that. He was like, fuck yeah, go for it. So he was cool. Oh,
0: that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. I was just wondering, cause you know, it seems like such an iconic song now, but maybe you're right in 90, you know, the sound had changed from them and maybe it was a little out of, out of flavor. Um. So anyways, it's cool to play, to pay homage like that. Does VD have a, do you have a breakup or do you fade away or, does chorus overlap? Uh, How does this end?
2: Um, you know, I, I was just starting to kind of write other stuff. And we had gotten, uh, we had changed drummers at this point. Uh, Jeff Simmons the original drummer had left the band and we had gone, you know, and this is part of that gap that you were, that you were referencing, you know, like what were you doing between this time and this time? Well, we didn't have a drummer for quite a while there. Um, And we had shared a drummer with Final Conflict uh, for a couple of shows. Jeff Zimmerman had played, uh, and we had played a lot of shows with Final Conflict as well. And God, talk about one of my favorite bands, one of my favorite guitars. But anyways, uh, and we got to know those guys, especially Ron uh, from Final Conflict. And when he heard that we were without a drummer, um, I was talking on the phone with Ron and he said, I think I may know a guy. His name is RD and he's from Huntington beach and he's really good. I was like, okay. So, uh, I talked to RD on the phone and we set up this practice at my house and it's like, uh, I don't know. I think we had him learn a couple of Ed songs and then, we may have had him actually learn a couple of final complex songs, like, let's just come over and let's jam these songs and, and try it out. And he came and he was, and Davies was like the second coming of Mackie. I mean, he was like unbelievable. Uh, so that was kind of the, the in vain lineup. And we played a lot of shows with RD. Um, but as time went on, I started listening to just a lot of that New York stuff and was writing different songs. And it just, it just was not just visual discrimination. It it wasn't, uh, it just wasn't the, the band to play some of the songs that I was kind of having in my head. And, and I, I agonized over it because, uh, you know, because I love Steve, I love Tim. Um, but there, there came a point where uh, where I decided uh, that I wanted to, to play some other stuff. And, I, and Isaac and I had started uh, talking about maybe doing some stuff at this point. But I we never started chorus until I, I was on the phone with Tim and said, uh, dude, I think I'm going to maybe move on and, and try something different. and And tim tim was bombed uh but but he 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 was very supportive
0: yeah and did they not consider going on like without you
2: they did they did go on without me yeah
0: they just well i know i know they did like the seven inch much later but how how long did they play without you
2: (laughs) they uh I guess, it, like into the early '90s, into like through the mid '90s, yeah, they went. They went on to record <laughs> the best stuff digital discrimination ever recorded by far and away was without me. I think that seven inches is untouchable. That's that, that's
0: what I think. But anyway, yeah, yeah they at least went. And, yeah, no, I mean, we I were gonna. They, I have it on the <laughs> list. I was gonna get to okay, it, but yeah. uh, we can get to it now. <laughs> that thing is insane. Oh. Oh God, it's
2: great! Well, and RD had played with uh, with Matt Domino from Infest. He played in Manpig, and I think he, and he played in Infest for a while. So I think Davies was primed to play that kind of stuff. And then, you know, Steve and Tim and I were Infest champions from their demo days. I mean, we were huge, huge Infest fans. Love Infest. Loved Infest. Love Infest, uh, so it's no it's no stretch that uh, that Steve and Tim, um, you know, for all I know, they wanted to play that kind of stuff all along, and I was the, I, I was the the squeaky wheel. Who knows? But yeah, they wrote some bangers. I love that seven inch.
0: Yeah, that was actually another thing I had on on my list. You you did backup vocals on the the first Infest seven inch. How 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 <laughs> yeah. what I mean they're such an interesting band. I got to get someone from them on the pod, but what did you think about them? Like the first time you heard them, like how did it settle into your brain?
2: Uh, (laughs) the first time I heard them was their demo and it was really raw and it was two guitars, one in each speaker and one was slightly out of tune with the other one. And I thought it was like, and it was like, who cares? Fuck it. (laughs) They're playing these great songs. Awesome. I loved it. Um, and we played some shows together and I mean, I was a fan and yeah, I'm generally a a pretty shy guy, but you know, when the time is right, I struck and went and introduced myself to Matt Domino and to Dave Ring, the bass player. Um, and they were just awesome, awesome guys, really nice laughing all the time, you know, just just cool dudes. They lived far away though. They lived out by like Magic Mountain. Um but, you know, I I there were times I would drive out there, bring my guitar, uh go to Matt's house, we would jam, we'd play stuff. Um you know, we just got to we, we hung out, we got to know each other and playing shows, and going to each other's houses and stuff. Um I collect ID. I, I collect old expired IDs, like high school IDs and stuff. And I have a 1985 Matt Domino. So there you go.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that. I mean, did you know at that time that they would end up being like just this seminal, iconic band that is looked back on so, like, with such reverence?
2: Did not know at that time. I remember talking to Matt once, and this always. Stuck with me because every time they put something out, I always remember this conversation. He was telling me he he was really into like bands like Siege from Boston and these kind of heavy, you know, like uh, power violence kind of bands. And he's like, I love the limited release. Like, there's nothing better than like a seven inch coming out with a release of 300, and that's it. Once they're gone, they're gone. He's like that's what I want to do. I want to put out records, like a bunch of different records where there's like only 100 of them. And he he told me that and he was all fired up about it. And I was like, "Yeah, that's, you know, all right. Yeah, that sounds kind of cool." And, and so every every time I don't
1: know
2: if you, I don't know if you've had this experience. I've always had a hard time getting my hand on infest stuff. And I think that's I think that might be the reason but, um, no, I didn't know that they would be so iconic, but they should be,
0: yeah, I mean, they, they are now they're, I mean, they're great, they yeah. are now, for sure, but you're right it, their stuff is harder to get i I just have bootlegs, so <laughs> but I have everything um, so let's talk about starting chorus, so you're friends with Isaac at okay. this point, um and you're you're writing songs, you do a demo before the l p right, but then you go write. Demo two LP,
2: right? Um, yeah, it was. Uh, and it was real fast. It was like I was working at a park, and you know, for whatever reason, I would always seem to get. You know, we had a recreation room at the park, and they would, you know, people would come and have parties from six PM to midnight, and it seemed like I was more than others drawing the short straw was like hey guess what jeff you get to work six to midnight so i used to bring my guitar and amp to work and i would just kind of hole up in the office and just play my guitar for six hours so one night i wrote i don't know seven or eight songs at work uh and then the next day isaac and i went in and recorded them in some guy's house some house studio in Torrance. um Yeah. So that, that was really fast. And, uh, yeah. So we had the, you know, so yeah, we had the chorus demo, but it wasn't a band at the
0: time. Gotcha. So when do you decide to do like, make it a full blown Mm -hmm. band?
2: Well, I, I mean, it was just a project because drummers, drummers were always hard to come by. And after, after leaving. Uh, visual discrimination. I wasn't going to ask, All right, hey dude, can you come and play drums? You know, I, I just didn't have the balls to ask him. Although I had the balls to ask if I could borrow his drum kit. And he was cool. But I didn't ask him to be in the a band. He had other stuff going on. Um, so it was just a project. And that was about it. I mean, it wasn't going to be anything serious. I just, I don't really remember when the tide turned on that um i think it was after we had recorded or while we were recording the lp because it was just isaac and me that went in and recorded that lp and we had i had shown that that demo to frank and you know he kind of got a kick out of it thought it was funny he's like let's uh he's like oh i'll put this out as a seven inch and I don't know why I said this, but I said, no, 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 Frank. This is going to be a terrible and We need to go re-record this stuff. And I'm not sure why he said yes, uh, but I remember him kind of laughing and saying, all right, fuck it, I'm in. Yeah, let's do it. So he he was cool that way. So we booked at West Beach 20 hours and borrowed a bunch of equipment and went in there and recorded it. And as we were recording it, this is when instead it just signed to Epitaph. So those guys were down there one day when we were there, just we saw them for 15, 20 minutes. and, And Kevin, I remember Kevin saying, Oh, yeah, I heard you guys are doing a project, you know, like judge kind of thing. And so I know at that point it was still a project when we were recording it. But as time went on and we were listening to the, the recordings and playing the recordings for friends and all this kind of stuff um, we just kind of said man we maybe we should do something with this and that's uh, we just kind of started scratching our heads and then put our heads together and like okay who are we going to get so
0: so you do, do you even play a show before the record comes out
2: uh, yes okay. uh, what, what we would uh, what we had a habit of doing is taking that soundboard that demo we would go to shows and i did this with the visual i was back all the way back to the vd demo days and then the vd record all that stuff i would always go up to the sound man at any show and say hey dude put this on between bands and then as after a band would finish, you know they'd put on the, the chorus recording. And then we'd kind of start making the rounds at the show, handing out flyers, saying, "Hey, do you hear this? Yeah, this is this band. Check it, you know." And start kind of promoting it that way. Um, so we had the recording, but we but it hadn't been released, and you know, we we we, we decided it was going to be a band, and we got some, we got Regis and Jerry Holman. To play in the band Uh, and then the record itself gosh came out like six or eight months after our first show I want to say.
0: Do you remember the first show?
2: Yeah it was at a Tupperware house like a Tupperware um, like a warehouse of some kind and I forget one of the Sloth Crew guys dad owned it (laughs) There there was some connection there And, uh, and we got onto that, we got onto that show. That was our first show because we had at this point, um, there was really no other choice, but we got Regis Garen to play bass. And he was a sloth crew guy. and He had all these connections with a lot of those orange County guys. So whenever a show was going down in orange County, um, we, we had a pretty good inside
0: track to be able to get on to some of that stuff. What was that first show like? What do you remember about it?
2: Um, It was, uh, you know, the the tape. Nothing had really circulated, so not too many people knew the songs. Uh, Some of the Cerritos straight-edge contingent, the Tony and Raphael Zentles, the Adam Bullards, uh, the Matt Bullards, those guys, those Cerritos straight-edge kids who had like a bootleg, who I had made recordings of it they were there and they went off and were singing and stuff but for the most part you know and then you had a lot of Regis's buddies uh, would kind of go off a little bit because it was you know Regis's band but I didn't you know we didn't know any of those guys yet Um, but it was uh, was pretty lukewarm I mean it was fun playing and stuff it was pretty lukewarm as I recall it wasn't like epic or anything like that
0: How is the LP received when it finally comes out? Well I, I, I think it was
2: received okay um, and you know and this was it was kind of tough because we had recorded it and we were playing shows and starting to get some traction and then I move up to away I, I go away to school I had gotten into I had gotten into school and I I moved so as soon as And I I remember coming back, I went up to school in the Bay Area and I came back down the day the record came out and they had like a little record release thing at Zed. And, you know, it was great and everything, but I was really kind of, gee, I was kind of disconnected from it when it first came out, which was kind of a bummer. And, and, I mean, nobody gave a shit about a straight edge band up in the Bay Area at the time. Um, So... You know, I mean, uh, I I know that when we would play shows, that people knew the words a lot more, and it was uh, it, it, there there was a lot more crowd participation and man. But so, I mean, I based judging from that, I think that it was getting some getting some traction. But I was kind of disconnected from hearing about it in the Southern California scene, at least on a constant basis.
0: This is also like a a pretty weird time for hardcore, right? Like it's a total transition stage 91 and then into 92.
2: Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. It it felt like, um, I personally felt like, you know, it was moving into a different direction that I was not going to be, uh, included in. (laughs) Yeah. It was just, you know, different, uh, it was just a different mindset, different vibe, different sounds, different musicianship. Um, it was in a direction where, frankly, I didn't feel like I was a, a decent enough guitarist to, to start playing any of this new kind of stuff and, uh, you know, going away to school. And I, I just wasn't, uh, wasn't writing, wasn't a real prolific writer at this time. So, yeah, and it, it was changing and I was kind of withdrawing at the same time.
0: You do do a another seven inch comes out the same year though the italian seven inch is yeah is that, is that recorded and comes out in ninety one no
2: the the Godfather seven inch comes out in i think oh, ninety one
0: yeah, no, no, no. yeah yeah on Got a, Nemesis. got 'em back, backwards oh, <laughs> you're right yeah
2: yeah yeah that one and you know and even that i i think uh let's see uh Regis wrote, I think that was three songs, and Regis wrote two of them. I contributed one or two riffs to the songs that he just wrote, but you know, like songs like "Chance," uh, uh, "Full Full Circle," "Stop." Those are Regis Garan songs. He had kind of taken the reins and started writing, and then, like a lot of the heavier, slower stuff. Uh, that's I was writing more of that. Low
0: kind of stuff at that time.
2: That's where my, that's where I was starting to progress
0: into. And are you just playing, yeah, so, are you playing shows when you come back to visit from college?
2: Yeah. Um, I had fell in with uh, a group of guys up in the Bay area, a uh, fellow named Corey Sabatini, who he had been in unit pride. And then uh, Joey Vella from breakaway and rabid Lassie uh Mike Pecos, Christian Rauman, those there was like a like a Bay Area straight edge crew up there. And I got to know those guys. And thank God I did because I was not mobile up there. I didn't have a car or anything. But uh when chorus would get booked for shows, it was always Southern California. Like we played a show with GBH and Beowulf at the country club. And it was uh okay, finished class on Friday. Sabatini and those guys pick me up. We drive you know, load the shit in, drive down, drive to the country club, play the show, go to my parents' house, spend the night, get up Saturday, go putz around, uh, hang out, get stuff to eat, and then either drive back Saturday night or spend the night and drive back Sunday morning. And it was a lot of that. And it was um you know, it it was it was awesome. I mean it was fun but I always just kind of felt like I had one foot somewhere else at the time. You know, I couldn't, I just felt like I wasn't fully committed to chorus, but I loved chorus and playing in hardcore bands so much that I wasn't fully committed to school either, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, because you do make it out to the East Coast, right? When did that happen?
2: We do. We went to... well that happened a couple of years later that was in the summer of 94 okay. I graduated uh, uh, go ahead I'm sorry
0: oh well then we should just get We you do a, another 7 inch in 1993 that one is the Italian 7 inch
2: it is yeah that was uh, yeah I got a call uh, or a letter from some guy in Italy from Helter Skelter Records uh, saying hey would you guys be interested in releasing a record in Italy and I thought Truth, you know, truth be told, I thought of Matt Domino when he said that. And I thought, oh man, this is, this sounds like Matt Domino kind of stuff. And I said, yeah, hell yeah, we would. Well, what would you need? And I was like, I don't know what we would need. I don't know, $500 to record. Oh, and they, so they wired over money and they, uh, they went in and recorded those songs. uh, it was downslide. Um, Father's Day, you know that. Yeah, that those, those uh, that agnostic front cover. Uh, but again, we were without a drummer and um, not a lot of not a lot of time to practice. Uh, I had graduated from college at that time, so I was living back in Southern California, but we just didn't have a solid drummer. So it was you know go in and. I played the drums on it, but it wasn't like we could practice it. Was it was just you go in and do do the best you can with what you got. Uh, but yeah, so we we did record that. We got an offer and they wired money. We went in, recorded, put it on a DAT, which I still don't know exactly what that is. But <laughs> I, and then I sent it via DHL or something to somewhere in Italy, and then a couple months later, a whole bunch of CDs and a whole bunch of seven inches showed up at my house, and it was pretty rad.
0: Uh, super cool so you get an offer to go to the east coast after that
2: uh no i i uh it was after that after that seven inch came out i got i had gotten accepted to law school and knowing what i knew about undergrad and how playing in a hardcore band was really i really had a hard time kind of pulling the grades i needed to pull as an undergrad playing you know going back and forth playing a hardcore band. I made this decision, which, you know, I probably wouldn't have made this same decision if I knew now what I knew then. But I said, that's it. I am done with, you know, playing in hardcore bands and going to law school. And I'm going to need to dedicate all of my energy to do this. You know, I made this ceremonious, you know, (laughs) declaration, which, you know, whatever. So I get out there and, and I just I thought about playing in a hardcore band every day, and I was distracted and I hated law school, and it was hard and, you know, it was just miserable. So that was the fall of 93. And then I come back for Christmas, and then I go back to law school for my second semester, and the phone rings, and it's this guy, this German sounding guy, who says, you know, he's like, "Oh you play in cause disapproval? And I said, you know, come on, Mo, stop fucking around. You know, I thought it was one of my friends playing a joke or whatever, and I uh, hung up on him, and then he calls back. I'm like, yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden it's starting to sound a little more legit, and he offers a tour of Europe. He's like, would you guys like to tell you how to, you know, he's like, do you have the Italian 7-inch come out in Europe? Yeah, well, is doing well, and, you know, and he's being very complimentary, and to know things about the other two releases and he's like would you like to come and tour and i'm like fuck yeah i'd like to come tour. yeah that sounds wonderful this is in january he's like well when can you come and i said well it's gonna have to be like june july because i have this semester of school which i i said that as soon as i said it I was like, okay, that's that. It's not going to happen. And he's like, oh, okay, yeah, we can make that happen. And I, just, I still didn't know if he was legitimate. So we take down each other's addresses and stuff. And then next thing I know, we're exchanging letters. And and there's this buildup for chorus to go to Europe in the summer of 94. So Isaac gets the bright idea. to He says, once we're done with Europe, instead of flying home, and calling it a rap he says we should fly to the East Coast and give some of our friends on the East Coast a taste of what uh, you know of the chorus <laughs> I think he actually <laughs> said it like that and I kind of laughed and you know I'm all for I'm all for road tripping I'm a road tripper so uh, you know I'm like yeah that sounds awesome so next thing I know we've got eight dates on the east coast on the heels of this 30 date europe tour so that's how the east coast happened it, it was uh it was isaac uh really putting in the effort and booking us uh um that handful
0: of shows on the uh, on the back side of the european tour what are some memories of the european tour um
2: <laughs> I, for some reason, I I thought it would be. It was mostly to just get a laugh out of my friends and just kind of shock value. Uh, my brother had bought um, an Aloha era Elvis Presley jumpsuit, and there was a running joke between my brother, his friends, me, and my friends that if you travel anywhere, you will wear the Elvis jumpsuit. And at the time. You know, my brother's a big guy. He's like 6'4", you know, 215. And I was coming in, you know, I'm coming in about 6'2", 215. You know, we're bigger guys. Not huge, but we're bigger. But this suit is like a size medium, right? Kind of on the small side. So that's kind of the joke is that it's this real tight-fitting Elvis suit. So the plan is we're flying British Airways from L.A. to New York, New York to... London to Frankfurt or whatever. Meet at my house, so everybody rolls in at my house, and of course I've got this huge—I've got my hair in this huge pompadour, and I'm wearing the Elvis jumpsuit. And it's like fuck it, I'm flying to Europe as Elvis, so let's go. <laughs> so we go, and I've got the like blue blockers, sunglasses, and stuff. And at first, it's freaking great because people are falling all over themselves at the airport. Well, Elvis, you know. And and hanging out and stuff and then in new york it's not quite as great but it's you know it's still getting some laughs and we're still you know everybody's all smiles and then we we get to we're leaving new york and we've got our equipment like our guitars and stuff right and the airline's been very accommodating with i'd like to put this in the captain's closet please and they're like oh yes sir right and and they're they're really treating my guitar with kid gloves and being cool. Well, when we're going from New York into England, they're like, ah, all right. But you know, hmm, I don't know. So they give me the guitar in London and then from London to, to Germany, they're like, fuck no, you're not putting this in the captain's closet. You got to check that thing in. Right. And I'm like, come on. So, Okay, so finally, you know, I relent. They weren't going to let me take it unless I check it in. So I check it in. And, of course, I get to Germany, and we're all jet-lagged, and I'm dressed as Elvis, and it's no, no one's laughing like they were, you know, the other three airports. And my guitar kind of comes out into, luggage, into where the luggage is, and I pick it up. And, of course, it's all smashed. Like the case is all thrashed and broken, right? And I'm pissed. So I grab it and I go up to the British Airways and I'm like irate. I didn't want to check this in the first place. They didn't maybe, you know, and I'm reading this uh this poor lady the riot act, and she's she and the people behind the counter are just laughing like at the spectacle of this Elvis, this irate Elvis, just dressing them down about this guitar, right? <laughs> And, and the more they're laughing, the more irate I'm getting. And, uh, so that's kind of how Europe started. Um, so that was that. And then, uh, the guy pulls up and he's like, Oh, you know, nice to meet you. We've waiting hours and hours. This guy finally picks us up and we're starving. We're jet lagged. And he says, uh, oh, I live in We're Like, well, where's Banoistad? he's ah, it's right down the road. Dude, I swear to God, it was like three hours away from the airport, right? So it's just taking forever. We're starving. We get there, and it's like man, a lot of cats, a lot of feral cats running around this neighborhood. What's up? We go to this guy's apartment, and you're hearing the pitter patter of mice and running over you
1: stuff. Wow. It's like man.
2: So well, I was a little nervous at first to Europe. Like man, I don't know about this. It just was uh, wasn't used to it. Um, but I'll tell you what, give it a week. And as we got to, got to kind of, kind of know people and, and it was, uh, it, it turned out to be just phenomenal. I didn't appreciate it in the moment as much as I should have. Um, but I did learn, I, you know, every, for me personally, we would go from one town to the next and I had my running shoes and I was, Doing a lot of running at the time, and I would make it a point because you'd have hours to kill in each uh, each town. So I was able to see a lot of the landmarks in a lot of the towns just on foot. I would go run three, four, five miles around on foot of whatever town we were in. So I was able to really soak in um, a lot of that stuff. Uh, some of the some of the standout shows, um, probably Cole. Uh, like the world cup was going on and there's a big Italian contingent that lives in Cologne in Germany. But that show just went off and then Italy had won a world cup game and we stepped out and it was just mayhem in the streets, people running with flags and going crazy. Um, And then uh, just the fervor, man, the fervor of the crowd. I mean, you see hardcore shows in the States now and people going insane that's what a lot of the shows there were like and i was not expecting that and it was freaking awesome uh and you know people wanting to hang out and just say hi and you know exchange stories and just it, it was uh it was great man it was great um yeah fantastic
0: so after europe you hit the east coast and what do you remember about playing the east coast
2: well when we were in belgium i think uh there was some inner band strife, and uh our drummer rd um decided that he was uh he was not gonna play the east coast shows and i wish i had that to do over again um i don't know i i think i would have tried i would have tried uh a lot harder to, to kind of smooth feathers of everybody and, and, and kind of preserve things. But I don't know. It, it just, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the healthiest um, when he, when he said, I don't think I'm going to do the East coast. Uh, so we were a little bit hamstrung going into the East coast. So what we did is we had Travis Bichard from uh, guitar player for mean season came out. And he had sat in on guitar for us before when we were down a drummer. Uh, so I switched over to drums for the East Coast, and Travis played guitar for one show, and then Travis and Regis switched, and Travis played bass, Regis played guitar. Um, what I remember was I was embarrassed the first couple of shows in the East Coast because at that point I, you know, you play thirty shows in a row on guitar, and you're, I mean, we were. We were really really tight at that time and just it was second nature some of those songs and we were you know I thought we were doing pretty well to switch from that to something as aerobic as drums or chorus uh, I had a really hard time with that I wasn't in drum shape I didn't have a drum kit so we were kind of at the mercy of the the stride like well we kind of lucked out because a lot of the shows we we we, we uh, Strike was on tour, so we were on a lot of shows with Strike. And we knew those guys and we were friends with them, and they were, you know, with open arms, just, oh, God, of course, use, you, you know, Sid was like, of course, you use my drums. And he was cool. Everybody was cool. But, you know, I just wasn't in shape. And I just felt like uh, I was, I know, I know, I knew then, I know now. I was the weak link in playing those shows. And it just felt like, some people on the East Coast had expectations for what the course was going to be, and those first couple of shows, I was such a weak link that I felt like we didn't bring it, and I was a little, uh, I was a little insecure about it. By about the third show, uh, we started to turn it on, and then you know we were playing. We played Josh Gravel's basement with Snapcase, and we were firing on not all cylinders but seven out of eight and then by the time we played with uh it was earth crisis strife and Snapcase in syracuse and uh yeah I, I think we were i think we were uh doing all right at that point and then our last show was with 108 in washington dc and we were uh i thought we i thought we did really well uh, as that tour wound up
0: then do you do an official breakup when you get back, or does it just fizzle? Because I think I saw you. Uh, I remember you did a, you did a reunion show at the showcase, so there was obviously a breakup at some point.
2: Uh, no, it wasn't really a breakup. It's just you know that was the end of '94, and I had two more years of law school uh, that I had to leave for. So I you know it's just I I just didn't live in California. Um, so Regis and Isaac and Jason Hampton. You know Jason Hampton?
0: Yeah, Outspoken. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Hampton. Love Hampton. Hampton played uh, with Regis and Isaac and then P.T.Q. I think played the drums and they started something called C.A.S.T.E. And I want to say they recorded maybe two songs like a two song demo. There's one song that is just freaking phenomenal. I don't know that it ever got released maybe on like a compilation tape or a compilation of something but they started kind of doing something called cast um and i was in in omaha nebraska jamming with some ska band called jimmy Scaffa there's all guys in this there's a hardcore band called clayface out there I jam with those guys from time to time but I, it was uh, never an official breakup but just geographically i mean it was just an understanding banks is going to be in omaha for the next two years that's so you know so there we are there you know and then there were times i'd come home like thanksgiving and we played a warehouse show with uh dead skin mask and gosh just some guys from uh, washington state were down with dead skin mask i think strife might have played you know so stuff like that but it was always it was always kind of eh, because he'd show up, didn't have a drummer. I yeah, let's play it. I play drums. I haven't played drums in six months, and we'd play, and you know, it was fun, and people would get into it, but it wasn't like yeah, I never felt great about it,
0: you know. Right, right. So what no, I, no, no official breakup. So what I'm remembering of like a a showcase reunion was it not a reunion that was just one one of the times you came back and you guys played a show.
2: Um. Well, I was uh, there a couple of couple of different showcase shows that I recall. I think I, I came back and moved to Vegas in ninety six and I wanna say there was a, a showcase show in like ninety seven.
0: Right. That would have been what um, I'm thinking of.
2: Yeah. And what no, I mean it wasn't I guess you you know, I guess you call it a reunion in the sense that we hadn't played in a couple of years. But it wasn't a reunion in the sense that we broke up and now we're reuniting. It was just, uh, you know, let's let's play kind of a thing. Yeah, And, yeah. Uh, we, you know.
0: It just great. in my mind, that show was huge. Yeah, it was huge. Okay. It was
2: awesome. Yeah, it was great. Um, and we had uh, this guy, Bev, Bevel Aqua. He was from back east and we had stayed at his house when we were on tour back east. But he had relocated out to the West Coast. He was a drummer, Uh, and he learned the songs with Regis, and you know, so he kind of knew. You know, I was able to come in, and the guy knew the songs, and we were able to play them. You know, and then there was another time when uh, Steve instead stood in for us. Uh, That was at the Whiskey with Ignite, and I think Death by Stereo and Strife, and. You know, so it was always nice when there was a drummer who knew how to play the drums that you know we could come in and play. And that '97 show was one of those kinds of situations where we had some front kind of. We were able to kind of front load a a drummer, and then I was able to come in and I could always play all the songs on guitar. And uh, Regis and Isaac and the drummer could kind of practice and and get things tight that way. So I always felt much I felt much better about those showcases
0: shows Yeah, I think I I remember you might have played like an AF show at the Whiskey, but I don't I don't yeah. remember. Okay,
1: yeah, um, yeah.
0: And then so after that, is there a breakup or again you just kind of go on hiatus and then that's a wrap? Kinda. It's always hot. Hi-
2: it's always hiatus, baby. It's yeah. always been hiatus. <laughs> so you, yeah, no, it, come it, back it's next never year. been. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, fingers 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 crossed that somebody something kind of you Know, kind of presents itself. Yeah, there was some time where I think Hartsfield did something in 2005 at the showcase. We played that, uh, and it was awesome. And that was, you know, A18 was up and running by that time,
0: sure. Uh,
2: and uh, which uh, oh god, A18, I love A18. Anyways, um, yeah, so it never, never an official breakup, nobody has ever had the the guts to come out and say we're breaking up but you know i mean what usually leads to a breakup i guess you just kind of go your separate ways but truth be told none of us we haven't ever truly gone our separate ways we're all still friends and we all are, all are still in constant communication
0: yeah yeah and so you moved to vegas and you've done various musical acts out there do you want to just brush briefly on on some of the stuff that connected with you
2: Uh, yeah, sure. I, um, I guess it would have been about 2013, my children were born in 04 and 06. Uh, so I wasn't doing very much musically other than, you know, me playing guitar here and there doing an occasional chorus show. Um, but I, I just kind of, I don't know, man, I just kind of got the itch and started sniffing around and I started jamming with this guy, John Stevenson, who had played in the band, uh, don't know. From Huntington Beach, he had ro- relocated out here. So I wrote a couple songs with him, um, but as luck would have it, he left. and, and then I answered a, a Craigslist ad for a band called Civilians, and it was a uh, kind of a kind of a street punk, kind of an oi band. And I took a lot of those songs, or a few of those songs that I had written, uh, into that band. But I was more at first kind of a hired gun to play guitar. Um, and, you know, they just kept kind of asking me back. And next thing I know, I'm becoming friends with these guys. And they're just a great group of guys. The one guy had played, he was uh, from Scotland originally. His name's Truland. And he had played in uh, the Brass Knuckle Boys in the Midwest in uh, Oklahoma and those areas. And then um, the drummer Gilbert was in that band, Youth Gone Mad, uh, from, like old school LA band. Um, so my, I was relieved when I went to jam with these guys and I wasn't like 25 years older than them, but, uh, you know, but we had a lot of common touchstones and they had lived in California and we had been at a lot of the same shows and it all just kind of very naturally, uh, came along. Next thing I know, we've got, uh, you know, we're, we're playing these, uh, playing these shows and. The drummer or the bass player Jeremy is writing songs, and we're recording albums. We did uh, one album, recorded it, uh, released it ourselves, and then we did a split with the uh, Defenders, who are out of Santa Cruz uh, on on Crowd Control Media. We Did a split, uh, twelve inch with those guys, and then you know we've been on some Vegas comps, compilations and stuff. We did a Thin Lizzy cover on a Vegas '77 tribute comp, and I don't know, probably played. 100 shows maybe with that band and then uh, i also play guitar in a cockspare uh his tribute band called moxbar so that's, that's uh that's fantastic so that's a lot of fun too yeah uh, but yeah we play some pretty good stuff they have a, a a mod scooter rally here in vegas every year where you get people from all over the world and we've managed uh, to play that a couple of times so we get kind of a international crowd meet a lot of cool folks and it's a whole new style of music and guitar that i've learned uh so they've been very patient with me teaching me the ropes on how to play a lot of that stuff but uh yeah it's been awesome it's been great
0: yeah super cool i mean it's just good to know you just still playing music right
2: <laughs>
0: yeah
2: now my kids have started a hard uh, hardcore band so
0: Uh-oh.
2: we've got yeah so we've got a studio in the living room and Turn it up and yeah,
0: so, How so great. So cool. <laughs> well, Jeff, I really uh, appreciate you coming on and uh, taking your time to do this interview.
2: I appreciate it, Zach. You know, I mean, to like I say, man, to be mentioned in the in the same breath with some of the with the Ron Bairds of the world, um, I, I really, I really appreciate you considering me.
0: Cool. Do you feel like you've been well represented?
2: Indeed, I do, and I, I appreciate the appreciate your questions and i gotta tell you man um you know there will be questions to be asked of some of the folks that you're interviewing and i will be on the tip of my tongue and you invariably ask the follow-up question that's on my mind i love your podcast i think it's great
0: well i appreciate that i I try to do my homework the best i can but (laughs) this this medium is pretty hard i'm still i'm learning every time
2: Hey, I've got a quick Olympic auditorium story I'd like to tell you. Yeah, let's do it. All right, 1987, my dad takes me and my brother to see Hulk Hogan defend his belt against Adrian Adonis at the Olympic auditorium. So we're there, and it's going freaking insane, right? It's absolutely insane. And Tony Atlas is on the card. Atlas uh, wins his match. I just don't remember who he fought. And there, he, he leaves, you know, some other matches. And just before the Hogan match, the guy gets in the, in the ring on the microphone and shushes the crowd. I mean, it's packed and it's a wrestling show. He shushes the crowd and says, whoever's driving a gray Lincoln such and such license plate, he rattles it off, says, could you please move it? Tony Atlas needs to get to the airport, and you're blocking his car.
0: (laughs) (laughs) hopefully, it wasn't your dad's car, and you missed the Hogan match. No, no, it
2: wasn't my dad's car. But anyway, that that's I remember that more than the actual the Hogan match. It's just I mean to to bring a wrestling match down to complete quiet to announce that one of the principal's cars is blocked in. It was uh, yeah. That was wrestling at the Olympic Auditorium. So there
0: you go. Yeah, the only time I ever went, (laughs) I saw wrestling at the Olympic was when ECW came out the one time, that Philadelphia organization. But uh, (laughs) yeah, my dad took me to see Hulk Hogan fought the one man gang at Ventura Fairgrounds. It would have been 88, I think. And that Uh, would have been my first time going. So that was fun. That's all I can remember. Other than Ted DiBiase beat the (laughs) Junkyard Dog. And yeah, well, that's about it. I was only eight, so I'm 40 nah. now, but yeah,
2: well, I learned with, re- I won't learn with wrestling. is sometimes I enjoy watching other people watch wrestling as much as I enjoy watching wrestling. So <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: yeah. I'm not, I'm not a fan anymore, <laughs> but Hey, be, at age 20 and under, I enjoyed it. So sure. Yeah. Well, well I, I thought of you. Yeah, I wanted to tell you that. No, I know. I'm glad you did. That was great. <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate your time, Jeff. Thank you very
2: much, Zach. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Bye-bye.